Thanks so much everyone for joining us. We're very excited to have this panel today. We're sponsored by ACS, LIST, and the new Law Tech Center. And we have three stunning panelists. We'll start Megan Gray here on the right is a principal at Gray Matters Law and Policy. She's an advocate for entrepreneurial companies at the intersection of free speech, privacy, online content, and competition. She was formerly general counsel and vice president of public policy at DuckDuckGo. She bought some shirts for those who are interested and an attorney at the Federal Trade Commission's Bureau of Consumer Protection Division of Enforcement, where she was lead counsel in the first consumer privacy civil penalty case. To her left is Professor Danielle Citrin, who's the Jefferson Scholars Foundation Shunek Distinguished Professor in Law, the Cattle and Chapman Professor of Law, and the Director of the Law Tech Center here at UVA. She's the author of Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, and in 2019, Citrin was named a MacArthur Fellow based on her work in cyberstalking and intimate privacy. Her upcoming book, The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age, will be published next fall. And joining us on Zoom, we're very excited to have Rachel Levinson-Waldman, who's Deputy Director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. She leads the Brennan Center's work on social media surveillance by law enforcement bodies and is active on broader issues related to policing and technology, including body cameras, protective policing, facial recognition, and information collection in the immigration context. Her most recent work includes the groundbreaking release of documents exposing LAPD's broad social media monitoring practices. Prior to joining the Brennan Center, Levinson Waldman served as counsel to the American Association at University Professors and as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Can we all give them a warm round of applause for joining us? Rachel, we, we are in fact really pretending that you are with us, so we sort of have scooched our chair so that you're in as if you are sitting next to us. That is very kind. I wish I were there in person, so this is a, this is a second best. Great. Now, I think to start, if we can maybe start with in the order I introduced you all, and you all can elaborate a little bit on your relevant positions and priorities as advocates before we move to a discussion of some contemporary privacy frameworks and changes. Sure. Um, so first off, the DuckDuckGo merch that's on the table, there's books, stickers, shirts, miss-sized shirts because it's the remnants of what I had, but we have sent boxes to Max, so you will have your assorted sizes. You can just check in with her later. Um, my background, I went to University of Texas Law School, simultaneously got a, a master's degree in public policy. And then after that, I moved to Los Angeles where I worked for big law and was at the first internet age. And I did content moderation, I did privacy anonymous speech, I did just about everything there. So that perspective has been incredibly valuable as I've moved forward in my career into uh, civil rights advocacy, privacy advocacy, government, and then in-house, and then uh, my own firm. So. It, it is interesting, and I'm very fortunate that I've got to see so many different angles. The, the part that interests me right now with privacy and how to deal with the toxic environment and, and problematic speech that 
that we're all aware of is I'm concerned that we're focusing on the wrong thing. It's kind of like being concerned about privacy and then having cookie banners. <laughs> that, like that has done nothing. It has slowed down the cause of trying to fix the online privacy dilemma by spending so much time negotiating and enacting and, and implementing these dumb cookie banners, which have done nothing to solve anything. And so my concern is that the problems that we're trying to solve for now, uh, in my mind, seem to be going in a similar mis misdirection that's going to slow down what we're actually trying to accomplish. Thank you. I guess I'm not allowed. May I ask a follow-up? Sure. So what's the misdirection, right? The, I mean, we have some myths and misunderstandings around 230, and I'm happy to give everyone a little primer on, on what it is, Section 230, and what it was meant to accomplish. But it'd be interesting to know kind of at the start where we're being misdirected in, in your view. Sure. I think the misdirection is that we're trying to get rid of speech that uh, we don't like amplification, um, highlights, uh, you know, toxic Facebook groups, all of those I understand why we don't like them. I don't like them. But I don't think if you're going to be practical about it, we're not going to be changing the First Amendment, right? So given that, there's only so much we can do because that is what a democracy is. It's going to have some really ugly people who talk <laughs> so that's not going to change and i'd rather see more focus on okay what what we're really i think trying to grapple with is that we are inundated with this there is no other place to go we cannot escape from it there it drowns out more healthy conversations and, and how do we get to a world where we're not completely submerged in a sea of, of hate? So I think that's really helpful to, to start us off, right, and to frame our conversation. Because um, you might imagine, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit um, and what we mean by the concept of speech. But just to start us off, uh, Section 230 is a federal law that Congress passed in 1996 as part of what was called the Communications Decency Act. Just let's pause for a second. Decency <laughs> it was like an anti-porn statute, which, believe it or not, we once thought we could get rid of porn on the Internet. A useless proposition, right? But most of the statute is struck down as unconstitutional, and, and rightly so. But what remains is a part of the statute called, this is the title of it, Good Samaritan, um, blocking and filtering of offensive speech. And the idea was to Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, then two Congress uh, folks uh, got together and they, there was a district court, uh, a trial court decision that really upset them, it disturbed them, because it found that defamatory speech, um, it, what it jeopardized internet early internet service provider of facing was strict liability essentially as a publisher. And so Cox and Wyden, they wanted to encourage responsible content moderation. They wanted people to act, that is, the providers of, of the internet, um, platforms that they couldn't imagine then, but were in the future, that they would be, um, have a legal shield 
for engaging as good Samaritans, blocking and filtering of offensive speech. They also recognize that if you took down too much, you had to act in good faith, right? So this is the provision that we're talking about, at least so many of us are. And Congress like woke up to this issue, like after 12 years of doing nothing, all of a sudden it's the thing everyone wants to talk about. And it is, there are a lot of like myths and misperceptions about what Section 230 does, what the problems are, like what the pathologies are. Um, and so you have folks say the problem with Section 230 is that it enables the filtering of speech, my speech, right? And that really pisses me off. It's censorship, even though we're talking about private companies, so it's not censorship in the classic First Amendment sense. So that's, on the one hand, one complaint about Section 230 is that it, it enables the censorship or the removal and blocking of too much speech, right? Too much speech that, that I like, right? And on the other hand, there are those who criticize Section 230 for enabling the under-filtering of troubling speech activity. So on the one hand, right, Section 230 is a gift because it has, for the past 25 plus years, given us the Arab Spring, right? Section 230 is why platforms like Twitter didn't crack down uh, when we had sort of bravery uh, on the streets of whether it was, you know, Cairo, like throughout the Middle East. At the same time, Section 230 is why we have revenge porn sites whose raison d'etre, whose business model is the tormenting of individuals, the publication of their nude photos without consent, often with their names attached to them. And what happens is victims go to these site operators. There are over 9,500 of them in the country. They're all, of course, located in the United States for the most part because why? We allow them to operate without any risk of liability. Right? So the most notorious revenge porn site, an IB, shut down in by the Danish police. Where does it set up shop? Las Vegas, alive and well and tormenting individuals. So Section 230, right, it gives us a lot of great things, but it also has given us not just troubling speech, not just hate speech, which is fully protected by the First Amendment, but online assaults that drive people offline. So cyber stalking, that is the combination of defamation, privacy invasions, of threats, of violence that silence people. That we have studies that show at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative that the cost of online assaults, they fall on the shoulders of women and, and minorities and often gender and sexual minorities, and they chase them offline. They make it impossible to, to live and work in an age in which Google is our CV, right? And so there are speech costs that I think we don't wrestle with enough. And so I want to change Section 230, and I'm happy to, we'll talk about how I think we should change it. But so I guess I, I'm so glad you, you frame this for us. That is, you're saying there's troubling speech, and maybe one way to get it isn't changing Section 230, but I don't think we're just talking about First Amendment speech. We're talking about all activity online, which isn't just ones and zeros. It's not just free expression and protected speech. It is speech we do not, we, there's, I feel like I'm such a great faculty here. Oh my gosh, where's Fred Schauer and Leslie Kendrick when we need them? There's so much speech that we think doesn't come within the protection of the First Amendment, right? We know that there are 21 crimes that are made up just ones and zeros. And so, to be clear, it's not all speech, and Section 230 even protects the sale of guns, right, and defective products, which is absurd. Okay, so I'm gonna stop there and let Rachel, <laughs> you can tell I have strong opinions about so, this. So, but to be clear, I mean, it, oh, it's no. not that 230 Rachel, protect, protects the sale of guns, it protects 
companies who are hosting right but they're too. getting like, a cut of the sit. sale of guns and that's absurd sure. okay <laughs> glad we agree on that one okay rachel we're ready for you all right um thank you let me just give um sort of as megan did maybe just a little bit of background on sort of you know who i am and the work that i do at the brennan center and then i can kind of bring in my angle on social media which is a little bit different um so um, as you heard, I'm deputy director of the Liberty National Security Program at the Brennan Center. For folks who aren't familiar with the Brennan Center, um, it's an organization that's based in New York, it's affiliated with NYU Law School. We've been around for about 25 years, give or take. I'm in our DC office. We have a 15 to 20 person DC office. New York is now probably 125 people. Uh, I always describe the Brennan Center is that we're focused on kind of shoring up the systems of democracy. So whether that be access to the ballot, campaign finance reform, independent judiciary, um, ending mass incarceration, or in our program, Liberty and National Security Program um, has, hasn't been around for quite as long as the Brennan Center itself, but historically we've been focused on post 9-11 civil liberties issues. So that was privacy, secrecy, domestic intelligence gathering, overclassification, Islamophobia, sort of a, a broad range. And those are still very much our bread and butter. Um, but so over the last now almost seven or eight years, the our footprint has kind of expanded to also include issues related to policing and technology and civil liberties and civil rights, in large part kind of coming out of a recognition that many of the issues, Fourth Amendment issues, and just kind of privacy and First Amendment issues generally that we were seeing in the national security space very much transfer to the policing and technology space. A lot of the technologies themselves kind of originate in the national security sphere and then are brought to domestic policing. And often the funding or justification for police technology also comes out of kind of a national security or counterterrorism footing. And then they are most often put into service in the war on drugs. But often justifications, we need this high-tech technology because you know, we're going to be kind of engaging in, in some kind of counterterrorism. So for instance, part of that, a part of that shift to kind of opening our aperture to include policing and technology issues, um, starting now several years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I started looking more at use of social media, starting really with how police departments were using social media. Um, not in terms of kind of outward communication or education, although there's a lot of that, that, you know, we're looking for this person or we are, you know, hosting a block party on this date, but really using social media to gather information. So that could be as part of criminal investigations, as part of situational awareness, part of just general kind of, you know, tracking and monitoring. It's used a lot to make um, determinations, often incorrect, about um, gang affiliation and gang designation. Uh, started looking into this several years ago, kind of coming out of work that we have been doing generally on surveillance technologies in public spaces and also predictive policing programs and kind of seeing how these came together in a lot of ways to produce this sort of online but in public surveillance of social media. And then, of course, there's another piece of social media that's somewhat less public that's about like using undercover accounts to, to connect with people online. Um, and we've also done work around how schools and school districts are, you know, using and collecting social media, how they're using third-party social media monitoring tools to surveil students. And then also increasingly how it is a really big source of information in the immigration and visa vetting space. Um, so as with 
many policies, the that kind of collection and use was sort of highly initiated really under the Obama administration, but was like weaponized and force multiplied under the Trump administration, a lot of that coming out of the Muslim ban. Um, so in terms of, you know, as I say, this is a little bit of a, of a different gloss. It's less about the kind of content moderation or content regulation aspect, although certainly there are intersections. Um, and more about thinking about, okay, how do we think about governmental access to and use of social media? Um, and we can get into more detail on this. There's a lot to say, but just sort of very briefly, there are a few strands that come into this. So one is the constitutional aspect and whether there are fourth or first amendment arguments to be made about surveillance of social media. And we can get into that more. And also just generally kind of policy argument. And especially as the policy evolves and as the constitutional kind of doctrine has evolved when we think about privacy protections in public, right? So as, you know, probably most folks know, even, you know, being and being early in law school, this is an area where the Supreme Court has really sort of shifted where it is and has started to think about what privacy in public looks like. And I think there are arguments that that applies in some ways and doesn't necessarily apply in some ways to social media. But in the meantime, there is there just seems to be really like vast, widespread use of social media by police departments. Um, and I can talk more about our research on that. So it's really kind of a, a burgeoning and growing area. Great. Well, I think piggybacking off that before we sort of open up into 2.30 more generally, uh, I'd love to hear your, all three of your thoughts, but starting with you, Rachel, on what impact, if any, January 6th last year had on privacy? And are we seeing a chilling effect in the platforms that members of the far right and supremacist groups are willing to use? And you know, what is the role that government versus private parties are having in restricting or not restricting privacy in the groups we saw involved in January 6th versus groups you studied after 9-11? Sure, that's a great question. I, you know, probably needless to say, sort of the aftermath of January 6th in so many ways has been a major topic of conversation within the Liberty and National Security Program and very much so sort of these questions around use of social media. Um, so, you know, to give sort of a little bit of like landscape setting, both around the lead up to January 6th than what we've seen in the aftermath, right? So, you know, as people probably know, it sort of emerged that there had been a lot of planning online, right, for January 6th. Um, it should not have come as a surprise to DHS, to FBI, to kind of any number of law enforcement agents. And in fact, it doesn't seem that it did come as a surprise, right? It sort of came out after the fact that there had been you know, there was like an FBI memo from the um, FBI field office in Norfolk, Virginia. There was certainly a ton of chatter online, including by people who had previously been involved in criminal activity, right? So this isn't just a matter of, well, people are talking, people are talking about protests, right? And you say, I think there are a lot of issues. Uh, I, I would not endorse the idea of um, kind of monitoring social media to find out about discussions about protests. But there were people um, who had been actively involved, including leading up to that, right? There had been a lot of activity, a lot of criminal activity at state capitals, right? And so sort of the people who had been involved in leading those, there was a lot of chatter among them about, about the lead up to January 6th. Nevertheless, as we all know, um, 
there was really like a woeful amount of underpreparedness um, going into that day. And so one of the things that came out of that um, is especially DHS, um, which has been very involved in social media monitoring. We want to kind of either launch a new initiative or at least expand social media monitoring work that we're doing. And this is in addition to the FBI talking about what sorts of authorities it has with respect to monitoring social media. Um, there was testimony, congressional testimony fairly soon after that, um, in which assistant FBI director sort of suggested that the FBI is limited when it comes to monitoring publicly available social media. It's really not the case under the FBI's sort of governing guidelines. There are actually very few limitations on use of social media, at least if you're talking about what, what's publicly available. It is certainly possible there are additional kind of practices or norms that are in place. Um, but there's a piece that um, actually an intern and I, uh, of ours and I published um, in Just Security earlier this year, really kind of digging into like what are actually the practical rules around the FBI's access to social media. And the answer is they can do a lot on social media before, even before any kind of criminal investigation has started up. DHS, what started to come out in reporting and then actually in um, you know, kind of disclosures from the department itself, a lot of social media monitoring through an office of DHS um, that's called Intelligence and Analysis, or INA. This sort of social media monitoring initiative coming out of INA is focused on narratives. And so sort of the DHS's cell behind this narrative focus is we're not focus on individuals. We're not trying to do sort of broad-based social media monitoring to, you know, identify specific people, although certainly down the line, that could be a part of it, right? If they actually identify, you know, kind of overt criminal planning, right? Information could be shared with the FBI or with state, state or local law enforcement. Their approach is that they want to look for basically narratives that could lead to violence. So, uh, less uh, Rachel, when you, when you say that, are you talking about, um, like pattern spotting, you know, the sense of just how how much has the chatter increased? Are we seeing certain themes? Are they, is that what you mean by narratives? So that's a good question. Um, I think there's probably a lot more to learn about what exactly is meant by narratives. In conversations that we've had with DHS officials, uh, which were not off the record, um, their description of the narrative monitoring has been an would be, from their point of view, um, we are seeing not, not just an increase in volume, right, almost thinking about it as metadata, right, where you would sort of like watch the hills and valleys and be like, oh, there's a hill, something's going on, but it's actually more content-based than that. So the idea would be like, we're seeing chatter about how a Jewish community or a Latino community in this city is really organizing around welcoming Afghan refugees. And that this group of people over here, you know, this group of white nationalists or white supremacists is angry about that. And there's increased conversation about like these particular efforts and this particular community. Right? So the way that it's being couched is really more about understand what the threats are, not necessarily to go after the people who are issuing them, although obviously that could come into play, but more to pursue sort of 
protection for the communities that are potential. So I, before we talk about this, before we sort of get on to the next thing, I, I think it's really important to add a kind of a gloss and a perspective, both a kind of civil liberties and civil rights gloss onto this, um, which is that I, I am I am certainly sympathetic to the this in general, given where we are post January 6th as well. Um, and really, you know, I think, you know, what seems like a, a rise in white, both in general and also, frankly, within law enforcement. One of my colleagues, Mike German, has done um, a lot of research and writing on this on actually how embedded white nationalists are within some law enforcement um, departments or agencies. I think there are real questions that we have not at all answered about. But, but uh, on Max's question on whether or not privacy has, has changed following uh, the January 6th events, I don't see any change. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I don't see more privacy. I don't see less privacy. I actually haven't seen, other than a bunch of, um, you know, uh, teeth gnashing, uh, any differences, uh, any actual changes in how we're approaching this, or from the people who are advocating for the overthrow of the government, the uh, stop the steal, I haven't seen them gone go underground, right? Which would be the smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very hard to scale, right? Which is why there is an initial foray trying to find other social networks, but that seems to have stopped and they're all back uh, on Facebook and such again. So I, I don't know, I haven't seen any, but I'm curious if, if folks have a different perspective. Rachel, I'm gonna I'm gonna join you because I think one, um, the, I think the question is who are we watching, right? And so Rachel, in your work, sort of throughout, and then our joint interest in fusion centers, the the question right is who are we watching? Not that we're watching, right? right? And so whether there is an increased mass, uh, you know, in the aggregate. <laughs> amount of watching, I think it's fairly clear, and Rachel, tell me if you agree, um, that we are watching and continue to overly watch um, the communities of color, Muslim communities. That is, we haven't changed that. So Fusion Center is you know, busy watching, arresting Black Lives Matters protesters, you know, that interesting Oregon case, Rachel, which I'm pretty sure the Brennan Center has some great posts about. Um, you know, where we're overly watching uh, First Amendment activities, the Privacy Act says you can't store that information, but except, of course, for law enforcement purposes, which maybe just changes the whole dynamic, right? You can do it. Um, and so I don't know if you think there's, it's this, I guess, that's your question, right, Megan? Right. Which is, are we doing more of it? Is it the same? Right. It's a, it's a whole lot of pervasive dragnet surveillance, <laughs> right? But Within the dragnet surveillance, we are we tend to and have, with significant civil rights and civil liberty consequences, watching communities who are long been watched. So, I guess can we ask that to you, Rachel? Like, I I don't want to cut you off, but I thought it would be interesting to no kind no of no and, and I don't, question I don't, in a way. And I, I certainly don't want to monopolize the the conversation at all. Um, I mean, I think the question about how is privacy being impacted. I think part of the answer is we don't know. Right? I have no idea how broad scope is 
of, for instance, who DHS says it's watching, right? The description of their suggestion could be very broad. What they have said in, in conversations is actually were, you know, focusing kind of narrowly in terms of like the kinds of platforms or the kinds of sites we're looking at. No, there, you know, there's no inspector general report yet. There's no, you know, internal, like there's a privacy office or, or you know, civil, civil liberties office report on this yet. Um, certainly, uh, the, you know, the one thing I was going to add is that our concern always is, and it's because this is borne out over and over again in history, to Danielle's point, is that regardless of the status for the monitoring, it absolutely will end up falling on activists and on communities of color, right? So today's, I've been for a long time, is white supremacists, but authorities, both in terms of legal authorities and kind of surveillance capabilities, always shift to, to target communities. So you're not monopolizing a thing, just to say, Rachel, we love this. <laughs> Um, I'm curious then to follow up on the 230 section. Who are you looking at for the biggest harm? Is it private actors? Is it government? Is the intersection? Is it what's being done? Or is it what's not being done as the biggest threat to democracy and privacy today? <laughs> or what, one of what the a, biggest. What a question. I wish you were still at DuckDuckGo. Just saying. Like, you know, I'm glad you're advising companies, Megan, but like, you're our privacy protector in the private sphere, right? Well, I didn't go to work for Google and Facebook. That's right? what I'm saying. So, that's that's like, what I'm saying. One of yeah. the few who, who did not. Um, the, the question on 230, right? So 230 is for civil liability against private companies. It doesn't have any impact on government actions. So just federal criminal, right? So it does impact it. I'm, I'm talking it, about like shield. liability against a police department. Okay. It doesn't, it, it, it just protects um, private companies. Um, now, in, in terms of how 230 has or has not impacted democracy, there is a very good case that uh, Danielle and others have made is that by virtue of having 230, this incentivizes companies to uh, allow you know, it, speech that gets people excited about Stop the Steal, which forments insurrection, which undermines confidence in the election. That is absolutely true. Uh, that's the nature of free speech. You can have conspiracy theories that get traction and adherence. Uh, it also leads to viral amplification and of things like me, the Me Too movement and BML that you wouldn't have had before when you had pre-internet and it was primarily just pockets of activism that was very hard to, to spread throughout the United States when you had you know, the, the printing presses controlled just by a few companies. So um, it, the question for me is not whether or not there's you know, problems on the internet. <laughs> it's what are we going to do about it? And if there's a way to do something that, that is throwing, that doesn't entail throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that is just a much harder thing to do because if you dislike Stop the Steal, but you like Me Too, you know, 
in terms of regulation or enforcement and legislation, it is very hard to distinguish between them. Um, and I, between the two, you know, if I have to take the stop the steal crazies with the me too's, me personally, I think that is better for society. I think there is an argument that can be made um, on the opposite side. I just don't happen to hold that belief. I want to do a quick follow up there. Do you see either in the government or private parties any distinguishing between those two? Do you think that they treat Stop the Steal different from Me Too or are those it's all outside of 230? So, you know, do we see like so if you take for example uh, Twitter. I think now you have seen some of these large companies decide on their own without any government regulation or enforcement, that they are not going to be uh, uh, free speech bastions, that they, their corporate values are such that they're going to censor the Stop the Seal, they're going to kick off Donald Trump, right? And that's going to cost them some money and some you know, market share, and that is a choice that they have made. And then you'll see other companies who make opposite choices. And that's what you should see, right? You should have companies who have different um, ways that they want to operate their business. And it kind of comes back to an issue that we haven't talked about, which is competition law and antitrust enforcement and monopolization. And I think it is uh, very short-sighted to talk about privacy and online speech without bringing that into the conversation because that ultimately is one of the levers that can help solve some of these issues. Not solve, but ameliorate, right? If you had a privacy law, if you had greater uh, number of uh, platforms to choose from, you know, all of that would, would help even out and, and stop this just kind of runaway train of toxicity that we have right now. Do you want to weigh in? Sure. You know I'm not shy. <laughs> right? I feel like my students know what I think. No, but um, I think you're right that part, this conversation, if we're going to solve for any of it, we have to be talking about privacy legislation without question. That we can't certainly amending and changing section 230 in the way that I'll describe is not going to solve for the woeful under-regulation of the collection use sharing, amplification, exploitation of our personal data. There's no question about that. So every time I feel like I give a talk, I say, yeah, yeah, section 230, we're going to talk about <laughs> privacy legislation, right? And then staffers look at me like, no, <laughs> that's too hard. And section 230 can be hard, but but I, I, so I don't want to get rid of it. You said we, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that's right. We don't want to get rid of, so I don't want to get rid of Section 230. But I'd like to condition the part of the statute that relates to the underfiltering of content. So that's Section 230C1. Um, that, so what I would do is keep the immunity, which only, of course, applies to the providers and users of interactive computer services, just to use the language of the statute. Now, so you have this immunity, right, this legal shield, so long as you're engaging in responsible content moderation practices, including amplification, vis-a-vis -vis clear instances of illegality, by what I mean is under the laws on the books, right, that causes serious harm. <laughs> And so what that's going to do is say, look, 
you good Samaritans, you get it. Act like good Samaritans. Uh, and so one thing that I've been exploring, I've, I've argued for this reasonableness to be dressed in the courts, something so Ben Wittes and I, um, I, I first wrote about this proposal in 2008, and it was not popular, I have to say. So like I presented it at the first Privacy, privacy Law Scholars Conference, and all of my friends, including one serious civil libertarian, is also a privacy friend, said like, you want a jail communist, I'm not talking to you anymore. And I was like, huh? Like, what do you mean, Michael Frumkin? What are you talking about? So he's very mad that we should ever touch Section 230. So it is kind of the sacred, we think of it in a way, it's been valorized. And, and that's not to say it it's not. It is very weird, I will say, this, this sacred cow of 230. I, I, I also think, and this, this may come off as odd, but I also think that we didn't need to have 230. Like, I think there was enough uh, First Amendment precedent and case law that actually that one case that yeah. motivated and then everything. And the other, also it, stupid. Right, like, pro yeah. Probably would have gotten to the same outcome. So it, it is a little odd that we're putting so much emphasis on 230, and, and, and uh, I'm not sure that we needed it. It did allow uh, some space to uh, for, for new companies to have... Uh, save on litigation costs, right? And they, that again gets back to the, the antitrust thing. So if any changes you're gonna make to 230, it may solve the problem that, you, that we have with Facebook and, and their like, the companies like them, but I'm, I'm less worried about that. I'm much more worried about what the changes will do for emerging companies. But that's why reasonableness yeah. is such an effective tool, right? That is what's reasonable for a platform with five billion users, let's just take Facebook, is different from what's reasonable of a startup. But you know what, that startup, let's say, does host really destructive content, including child predators that they know about and have noticed about. The value of 230 is that you, you don't have to litigate. It's a motion to dismiss. You know what they call it? Too bad, so sad, friends. There's like a whole lot of harm on the table that has not been, that has been externally born by pretty vulnerable people who've under, been under, silent. Understood, but, but the outcome is that the emerging companies who don't have the resources to litigate whether something is reasonable or not, they are going to be unable to grow and compete and they're going to have like not very attractive business models and platforms, right? But the Facebooks of the world will. So, but wait, the startup that has the investment from big VCs, right? I'm not gonna cry a river, I have to say, over the startup that's not well-funded because it's not a great business model. Um, does that make sense? Like, I think, I think we say startup as if they have no funding, right? It's just like two kids in a garage. Yeah, the, right? they're like, not all startups are- No, I'm not suggesting that yeah. they are all funded by the Kleiner Perkins of the world, mm -hmm. but, but nonetheless, that is, you can do a whole lot of harm with just two people, yeah. right? And so I think that if you had a standard that required the internalization of some of these costs, and creating a reasonable approach to what is not protected speech, illegality, right? That shoves people offline whose speech costs we don't account for, right? Mm -hmm. um, that you have to have some litigation costs, that's called business, right? Like literally business, <laughs> right? The idea that there's no litigation costs for companies is a frankly absurd notion as we sit here at University of Virginia Law School, right? There is, for most, if any, industry, litigation costs. Because when you do harm, 
right? Not to valorize um, homes, but I don't mind. When you do harm, right? You wreak havoc. You have to internalize those so costs. So what is the le- illegal speech that you're thinking of? Threats, cyber stalking, violations of intimate privacy, uh, facilitating child predation, uh, just to take some examples, right? So the, the illegal speech is the underlying speech that you're worried about, not not the hosting or facilitating or amplifying. I'm worried about the enablers okay. of, of but then incredibly- But the, the enabling itself is not illegal. Well, it depends. It could be a tort, like the negligent enablement, the facilitation of crime, right? Klein, who loves that case. I'm sure I have a lot of takers in the audience. No, landlord, tenant, negligent enablement of crime. People, come on, friends. <laughs> um, but there are torts, right? So you're right to point out that not all speech is liability-inducing. And so in some respects, some of this, like, oh, my God, hair on fire, Section 230 freak out is a lot of presumption that everything is strict liability, that is platforms will face strict liability, and that's totally wrong. Take the first year classes, right? There is no strict liability, right? So that's also, I think, an overestimation of the cost, though I take your point really well that, that a lot of what happens, though not everything, is plausibly related to some forms of speech, and speech by what I mean legally protected speech. So there's, that's true, right? We're going to have error costs. Mm-hmm. in a reasonableness standard. And I think the error costs have to take, you know, we have to take into consideration lots of speech we already lose mm-hmm. yes. under Section 230 that exists as it exists today. Right. So is there, if I can ask a question, and I should be very frank, but I am not a Section 230 expert literally in any way. Um, we have like <laughs> done, we've certainly done a fair amount of work on sort of content moderation, but in a lot of ways we've sort of steered clear of Section 230. So is really just to ask a question. And I think this is sort of to what both of you were just speaking, right? That kind of dialing back on the section 230 protections could then, I guess, let me sort of rephrase. Danielle, you were making the point that there is, we're we're not in a neutral space, right? There's already speech that is being lost. So we can't say like, well, we're in this fine neutral space where there's section 230 protections and thus all the that should be out there is out there and it can, you know, battle itself out in the, you know, marketplace of ideas, right? And I, I think that alone, sort of talking about the concept of marketplace of ideas and whether that still has any real, like, force or salience now, I think that could probably take up the whole hour itself. Yeah. But, but I guess I'm wondering how you do account for, right, it's going to, it's going to push the other way, right? So there are some kinds of each presumably that would come back in and then other kinds that would be pushed out and in part, I assume, because platforms would become sort of much more enthusiastic, right, about their regulation, right? That seems like that's always been one of the concerns is that they would sort of draw those boundaries far too widely if, if they, uh, and obviously they can now draw boundaries wherever they want, right? That's sort of one of the beauties of, of, of Section 230 is that there's actually a lot of regulation they can do. I guess I'm wondering how you would see that playing out or if there are ways that those concerns are mitigated, right? Partly there's some like horrible abusive speech that's lost, you know, right? No big loss. What about the other speech of value that ends up kind of being dragged along with it? Right. I mean, I, I think that's the the nuances and the trade-offs that any of this has to address. And Danielle, uh, 
correct me if I'm mischaracterizing you, believes that the value of, of the marginalized groups who have been silenced and who, who aren't able to exercise really uh, the, pe the place that they should have in society and the speech that they should be vocalizing because of the harassment and, and bad behavior and illegal acts that um, they suffer from, that having those voices uh, brought back into the public sphere is more valuable than the, the over-correction that will inevitably happen for some of the speech that is currently there. And I just make a different value choice, right? But I, I think both both perspectives have value. Um, I, I'm not sure that there is a, a right and wrong here. You know, I I I just, from my perspective, I I'm not sure that the the voices that are currently missing from the debate that they will be a part of the debate. Right? Even if you kick off all the Nazis off the internet, right? you're going to have uh, poor communities that don't participate in public debates and aren't on Twitter and Facebook for a whole host of reasons that have a lot more than just the fact that it's maybe a toxic environment for them. Right? There's a lot of reasons why they're not participating in that. And so because I'm not convinced that this is necessarily going to be the outcome, but I do fear, feel pretty confident um, that there will in fact be people who kicked off the internet um, that we don't want kicked off as a result of over and, and misplaced um, Good Samaritan type um, uh, uh, systems. You know, I, that's how I weigh it. Just to, just to um, intervene just a little bit here, the when you say the costs are only speech related, you're not sure if we're going to see marginalized people, you know, take advantage of that. That's not all that it is, if only. Right? In, under assault online, you lose your work opportunities. That is, one cannot work with a Google CV that's full of defamation, that you're impersonations that suggest you're a prostitute, right. nude photos. You just, you can't get a job. So it is what I refer to it as, and we at CCRI describe ourselves as, we, we are advocating for both civil rights and civil liberties online. That is, all of life's key opportunities are contingent on these technologies that are with us wherever we go. And so the, there are meaningful costs that, as an empirical matter, we have, at least we have some information about the we do, at least as to cyberstalking and invasions of, in, of intimate privacy, we do have a sense of the economic, emotional, psychic community costs. Um, but the broader question, empirical one, about you know, who, what would this ecosystem look like if we conditioned liability, that is, we had liability, if you weren't engaging in reasonable content moderation practices. And I, I suppose that we'll have to wrestle with should that ever happen. And one thing that I think is worth considering is having, I've been convinced by Blumenthal's office, that, that maybe the courts aren't the right actor, that if we gave the FTC enough funding, that if, which I love the idea in this big package, that we might give the FTC a whole lot of funding. It'll never happen. Oh, please. Can't we just pretend for five minutes uh, that, that we might see an expert agency 
um, set forth evolving, not stuck in the mud, right, um, reasonable practices in the face of clear illegality that allows for flexibility and nimbleness and change. Right, so, and what's interesting, Rachel, you're saying you, it does worry me also when you hear someone like Zuckerberg say he's welcoming, you know, Section 230 change, which honestly is nonsense because his whole business model are likes, clicks, and shares. Like, he didn't shut down FaceTime Live when people were getting murdered, right, on FaceTime Live. Why? And internally, it's clear it was making money. There were millions of people watching the death videos. So the idea that he really wants 230 reform is, is truly a talking point by my lights. So, so I do wonder, but I do think we have to, as we think about reform, do be really careful, as Megan, you've urged us to, is to think about the difference and, and the shoulders on which it falls and how the difference, it, there's a big difference between uh, and I didn't mean to disparage startups, forgive me, anyone who's interested in <laughs> representing startups, all very you know, honorable things to do. Um, but there is a difference, of course, between the behemoths. They big, they, yeah. you know, right? Like, I'm not gonna cry a river for Facebook for five seconds, nope. right? Or, or Twitter or, or any of these companies, right? The big ones, mm -hmm. right? They are monetizing our eyeballs. They make money off of selling everything we do and think and see and engage with online. Almost They're every advertising it, 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 they, that, That's almost the entire internet, though. They've just been much more successful at it. Well, because they're advertising, like Twitter, it's advertising part of its arm is a huge moneymaker. Same with yep. Facebook. Facebook knows what you're doing on your period tracking app, even if you have never, ever, ever had a Facebook profile. Yep. Why? Because they're an advertising company. Right, but I mean, you see Buying this all over Etsy. You see it with Yelp. You see it with, uh, with, with Pinterest. You see it like the, it's, it's very hard to try to, at least I, I haven't been able to come up. So with are you like, giving into the model of advertising? No, right? No, okay. I, I, I had a feeling all. no, because I, like, not that, that go, right? Like that's, <laughs> that, that go do, does knows right? nothing about you. Yeah. Um, and so I prefer a, a privacy law that bans yeah. uh, surveillance advertising, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it is, it's hard. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not very confident it will happen. Uh, but the larger issue is, okay, yeah. practical. If we're not gonna have a privacy law, and if we're not going to change the First Amendment, what do you do, right? And I would love to do something with Facebook and Twitter and Google, but I don't want to hurt the kind of lower tier companies that are the only possibility that some of these, these big tech problematic companies are going to face in the next 10 years, right? So th that's where I always get stopped, you know, and I do actually believe that Facebook would like a Section 230 reform. I actually do. I think they have the resources. I think I see it as an opportunity to... Uh, you know, stop, stall at least the growth of any uh, burgeoning uh, companies and for them to, you know, kiss ass on the hill and they can, they can perfectly, not perfectly, they can easily implement a reasonable content moderation program. Um, and if that's what it takes to get uh, Congress off their back with uh, antitrust cases, that is a good trait for them. Um, 
so I, I you know be careful what you wish for I guess is is where I I come out all right I do want to stop if there was a great sort of poking the bear pause point I think unfortunately we are over so we have to conclude here but thank you again to each of our panelists this was wonderful thank you so much